Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Parenting encapsulates so many different aspects of care when it comes to a child. We receive messages about paying attention to how children are doing in school, with friends, what they're eating, how much they're playing, how hard they're working, if they're reading enough, sleeping enough, getting outside enough, and much, much more. And while all of this is important, what do you think is the most important thing that a parent can do to make the biggest difference in the long run with their kids? The research tells us it's all about showing up. In fact, studies show that the best predictors for how any child turns out in terms of happiness, academic success, leadership skills, and strong relationships is whether at least one key adult in the life of a child has consistently and predictably shown up for them physically and emotionally. So today, we are going to hone in on exactly how we can show up for the children in our lives so that they can thrive. For this conversation, we have invited best-selling author Tina Payne Bryson on the show today. Tina Payne Bryson is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice, and of the Play Strong Institute, a center devoted to the study research and practice of play therapy through a neurodevelopmental lens. She is a licensed clinical social worker providing pediatric and adolescent psychotherapy and parenting consultations. Dr. Bryson keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, clinicians, and industry leaders around the world. She is the co-author with Dan Siegel, who has also been on the How to Talk to Kids About Anything podcast, of the Yes Brain and the New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, as well as the upcoming Bottom Line for Baby. She earned her PhD from the University of Southern California and lives in Los Angeles with her husband and three children. And she is the author of this fabulous book, The Power of Showing Up, which is what we're gonna be discussing today. Welcome Tina Payne Bryson to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you so much, Robin. I'm so excited to join with you today and talk about this really hopeful and powerful research. Well, I'm really excited about it, too. I read your book cover to cover, as I always do, and wrote all over it and have notes <laughs> and all kinds of things I want to ask you about. But before we get into the thick of showing up for our children and all the research, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in the power of showing up for children? Oh, it's such a good question. You know, what What gets me up in the morning is getting my kids to school, mm -hmm. you know, just to be real. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but really, I, you know, I love, like, cooking and thrift shopping and, like, all that kind of stuff. But what really drives me 
is having an impact mm-hmm. and really making a difference in terms of how parents and teachers and other adults see and interpret kids' behaviors. And that really we have tremendous power and opportunity in that the experiences we provide kids don't just influence their minds or their behaviors and their characters, but also impact how their brains get wired. So really we're, we're kind of training up the next generation of grownups. And so that really drives me. Love that. Love that. And think it's really important to put it out uh, straight away. Your book is grounded in attachment research and it yep. centers on the four building blocks or the four S's as you talk about them. Every child needs. So can you tell us what these four S's are and how they play a role in how kids thrive. Yeah, we had to write this book because, mm-hmm. you know, this is based on 50 years of research done cross-culturally, and it is full of so much hope, which I can't wait to share with you. Um, but it is, we have in some ways lost our way as parents. We've, Dan even says we've lost our minds mm-hmm. um, because you know, we, we either are doing the hyper-parenting where we're over-parenting and we're thinking we have to do and be and provide everything for our kids to thrive, or we're really distracted and checked out. And for either kind of pendulum swing of parent, the answer is that what our kids need most from us is to show up. What your kids need most from you is you. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about being present and showing up. And so the way we like to talk about that is these four S's. What does that mean to provide secure attachment to your kid? It's really the idea that not perfectly, but most of the time they feel safe, seen, soothed, and then over time secure that fourth S. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think those are, are really important. It's funny, while reading this, I felt like I was launching right back into my PhD work because I actually had done a lot of work in attachment research when I was in my first couple of years with Professor Ann Easterbrooks, who did so much research in that yeah. area. And uh, it, it was a very exciting research that we did and even published a paper on attachment in seven and eight-year-olds. And so it was exciting to see, you know, the strange situation and yep. uh, a bunch of the classic studies out there. But you say in your book that one of the S's is, is being safe and, and making sure our child feels safe. And in words and in an illustration that a child who feels unsafe feels that people and relationships aren't safe. I can't trust anyone or anything. My protectors don't keep me safe, so I'm on my own and it's all up to me. And a child who feels safe feels I can rely on people who care about me. Hard times may come, but I can count on others to show up for me. I'm safe and I'll be okay. So how do we keep a child safe without doing what you were talking about, those pendulum swings, yeah, hovering, rescuing, you know, like jumping in and, and so that the child does feel secure in their, in their own skin. You know, when we hover, they don't feel so secure after a while. Yeah. And when we hover like that and we overparent and we, we protect our child from every little negative feeling or every little moment of challenge or adversity, 
we actually communicate to them without meaning to that the world is a dangerous place and you better be hyper vigilant all the time and you're vulnerable and that's why I have to rush in all the time and, and rescue. So when we do that, it's actually the opposite of safety. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about safe, we're talking about really fundamentally actual physical safety at first. So really there are two main parts to this safe. The first is protecting our children from harm. Now that does not mean protecting them from feeling disappointment when they don't get invited to the birthday party, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) This is what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. making sure that they're safer on water, that they're buckled in their car seats, you know, that, that, um, if there's a big dog running at them, we scoop them up, you know, so this is really about protecting them from harm. And most of us instinctually do that pretty well. The second part of this, that is something that a lot of people never talk about is about not being the source of our child's fear. Mm -hmm. Now this, Mm -hmm. we've got to talk about this and Mm -hmm. this is really hard. Now, obviously I mean this in serious ways like abuse and neglect. And so Um, You know, that's something that actually touches a lot more families than people expect. Um, But this is super important. Um, But it's also more mild ways that we violate our child's sense of safety. And ways we do that really commonly in most families is um, either fighting with um, a a significant other in ways that aren't calm and respectful, screaming and yelling, um, being really unpredictable ourselves as caregivers, like screaming and yelling at our kid, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, just moments we flip our lid and we lose our cool. So the key about this is that we have to understand that this idea of safety is really the primary function of what attachment really is. It's a mammal instinct that when we sense danger, when we're afraid, when we're, um, when we, you know, when we're, we've sensed danger or we're afraid or we're hurt or something, we have a biological drive to go straight to an attachment figure that will help us survive and stay alive. That's really the fundamental purpose of it. But what happens if you're, attachment figure who's supposed to keep you safe is the source of your fear, the source of your terror. So, you know, that's really, really important. And, you know, in those cases where parents truly are doing that, you know, it's really important that parents reach out for help because, you know, as soon as we start making changes, our our children really benefit. But the key to this is not to be so hard on ourselves too, because what the research also shows is that times we do that, if we yell at our kids and we, you know, my kids, refer to a story called the Yahtzee incident where I, we were playing a board game. I lost my mind and I yelled at the kids and threw the dice across the room. Mm -hmm. So this was the Yahtzee incident, right? The key to that is that that moment does not call, um, does not harm my children. And in fact, it can build resilience as long as when I violate that safe, I make a repair. Mm -hmm. So I go to them and I say, Oh my goodness, (laughs) I, my anger really got the best of me there. I do this I'm so often. So, it's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> repair, repair, repair. repair, repair. Um, and then we just say, you know, I wish I had handled that differently. I'm so sorry I took that out on you mm-hmm. and you didn't deserve that. Yeah. And I'm really sorry. And when we do that, it builds resilience because our kids have an experience where they're like, relationships are messy mm-hmm. and they have conflict. And sometimes we treat each other in ways that are not okay. And we get through it we come together. That doesn't mean the relationship's over. And so, you know, if you were lovely, Robin, every second to your children, the world would be a scary place. So you're building Uh resilience, right? 
oh yes lovely all the time yes Yes, i i agree and and the apology we've talked about it many times on this podcast but i mean it is just part of what we need to do and i always say parenting is the ultimate do-over there's always another moment there's always another day to try again to apologize and make it right so I, I love the example you're giving uh, the Yahtzee incident and I and the idea of apologizing, especially if we, as you talk about, flip our lid, uh, lose our temper, lose our sauce. We call it all kinds of things. Yeah. And, and so I would like to just push it further and just use like a, a common example that sometimes can make a child feel unsafe when we handle it in a, in a particular way. Uh, that that doesn't show what you're talking about the the restraint and safety so let's say if a child doesn't make a team what would it sound like when we have a response that makes a child feel unsafe versus a child who feels that they're safe regardless of the fact that they didn't make the team that everybody was hoping that they would make Yeah, I think, you know, safety is really communicating to our child that we trust that they can handle something and that when they can't, we will walk with them through it. Mm. So, you know, I think being predictable Mm -hmm. is a great way to help kids feel safe. And, And that includes boundary setting. You know, this is not a permissive parenting model at all. And we can talk more about that when we get to soothed. But I think, you know, when you're, when your kid is devastated because something happened that they were really hoping for, the way we help them feel safe is by saying, this is really hard. This was so disappointing. And I'm right here with you as you feel disappointed. Mm-hmm. Not so I'm going to go give, call the, the, the coach right no. now and I'm going to, you know, give them a piece of my mind. Right. Yeah. And usually when parents do that kind of thing and we get really reactive and we start doing reactive behaviors, kids most of the time don't want us to do that. Yeah. It makes them feel embarrassed. It makes them feel like they'll be treated differently by their peers or by their coach or things like that. And when we do that, then we become unpredictable, loose cannon kinds of parents. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying there aren't times to advocate for our children. You know, if if your child, I just gave a talk this morning at a local school um, where there's a lot of social conflict happening among first and second graders, which is very developmentally appropriate. Mm -hmm. They're trying to experiment with things and they might be best friends one minute and they might be worst enemies the next minute. And then the next day they're best friends again and the kids get over it and they're trying to work through an experiment, but the parents don't get over it. And so they come home and they're like, you know, Brandon took my backpack and kicked me on the leg. Mm -hmm. And the parent goes into like vigilante justice, you know, justice mode Mm. on Brandon, who's a first grader, by the way. And, (laughs) you know, and the parents start calling the other parents screaming at them and, Mm. you know, and, this does not help our kids feel safe. What helps them feel safe is that must have really hurt your feelings or how did you feel about that? What was that like for you? And how are you going to be a problem solver? I'm going to help you come up with some ideas. And then if it continues again, then you say, you know what, why don't we talk to your teacher together and see if she has any ideas or, you know, so you're, you show up for them, but you don't become a bulldozer that's unpredictable. Mm, Great, great point. And I like the way that you're putting that it is important that we are there that we're by their side, but not 
you know, getting in, in their face, getting in front of them and pulling them along saying, this is the way we're going to do this and you have no choice in the matter. I do think that, you know, you can, if you feel like it is necessary to talk to a teacher or to uh, have a conversation with the school social worker or whatever it might be, that you can say, to, to actually ask your child, what do you think about this? Because yeah. I, I, you know, maybe, as you were saying, maybe they will have some ideas and we can do this in a way that other people don't need to know if that's you know your concern if you're embarrassed about it you can talk that out with your child without being the one who's saying this is the way it's going to be and that's that um that's I'm, right I'm the parent that's why okay so let's move on to scene and you say that there is a triad of being seen and that is perceive make sense respond and you yeah. tell us that this means um that this means that we need to really see our child for who they are and and help them to sort of make sense of the world, make sure we're responding appropriately, not based on our own agenda all the time, but really who that child is. And even if they're different from us, which we will get into in a moment, but <laughs> because it's, I think it's so, it really, it really spoke to me, that section. So can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to really see our child and then put this into context with maybe an example of, or two so that we really understand what that means? Yeah, this is such a good one. And I think this one and Soothed, but particularly this one, is exceptionally challenging mm -hmm. for this generation of mm -hmm. parents mm -hmm. for a couple reasons. One is many of us were raised with the children should be seen and not heard kind of approach, mm -hmm. right? And so it may not be natural for us, or we grew up in families that were focused totally on the external world, but not a lot of attention to the internal world. Um, but also we, the stakes seem so high with this overparenting thing where we really want our children to achieve and that can really blind us mm -hmm. from seeing who our children really are. Mm -hmm. What I mean when I say seen is to look with more than just your eyes. It's really about doing what we call mind sight, where you're really seeing the mind of your child. Uh, mind sight is really about seeing your own mind and the minds of others. Mm -hmm. And it's really about looking at the mind behind the behavior. So, you know, perceive and, um, and uh, make sense of really means being curious about what your child's experience of that situation is mm. before you respond. And a lot of times it's so easy to just go straight to the response, right? So I think this comes up a lot for parents when there's a difficult behavior. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I'll give an example of, you know, my kid who um, is having it, he's four, my little guy, JP, um, who's now 13, but this is such a, a story that sticks out with me. He was about four years old. He was exhausted. He had a total fit about getting into the bathtub. And I don't, you know, typically I wouldn't care that much. I, I let my kids be dirty a lot, but for some reason yeah. I he really needed a bath. Um, so I was like, you, you know, it's, you've got to get in the tub. So he had a total meltdown getting in and then then he kind of settled down and then, you know, it's coming, Robin, right? He has a total meltdown about getting out, right? <laughs> so, um, so it's time to get out. And now if I'm not doing scene and I'm just focusing on the behavior, I'm going to say, I don't know what you're so upset about. You were mad about getting in. Mm -hmm. I let, you know, now you're in and now you're mad about getting out. You need to get out of the bathtub right now. I don't want to hear it. 
and it's time for bed. Absolutely. Okay, so, I think so many, so yeah. many people would do that. Me included at times. Oh, like, me too. It depends on my frame of reference at that particular Absolutely. moment. Absolutely. And, and who else needs something and how much time you have? You yes, right. Like we have to get to bed. Like it's time for bed now. <laughs> right. And and when we do that, you know, it's we're not really, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not saying you're, you know, it's a, it's a major deal that yeah, you're doing I that. But it. here's what scene is like instead. Mm-hmm. Instead, I say... Um, I see that you are really bombed about bath time being over. Mm -hmm. You're really having fun and you don't want to get out. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really about seeing his experience. So I can say, you know, oh, you're having so much fun. You're so disappointed that bath time is over. And by the way, I'm not saying so. It's okay. You can stay in. Right. You're not saying that permissive parent. That's right. And I'm saying that as I'm lifting, you know, I say, you know, you can either get out or I will help you get out. And as I'm lifting him out of the tub, I'm saying you're so mad about bath time being over. Mm. And um, so it's really about tuning in. And so much of the time, I think one of the biggest mistakes we all make as parents is we assume that a bad behavior is a chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, is a chosen thing. And sometimes it is, but a lot of times kids do things because their own nervous system and bow- and their brain, you know, they flipped their lid and their nervous mm-hmm. system is in, is in reactive mode, mm-hmm. or they're trying their best to make sense of their world. Like, you know, one kid kept getting in trouble with his parents because every time his picture was taken, he would make these funny faces and they were so frustrated with him. Um, and, you know, when we really got curious about that and said, what is that about for him? Why does he keep doing that? Even though he keeps getting in trouble, what would that be about for him? And it turned out as we got curious, he was actually a really self-conscious kid and he felt really embarrassed. So he made those faces because it was his best strategy to tolerate the embarrassment he was Mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. So part of this is just really tuning in to their experience. Or here's another example. My husband, who is a phenomenal parent, like way more calm than me lots of times. Mm-hmm. Um, I was away speaking. I had had a, you know, a night in the hotel by myself and had slept and he called me. He's like, I need some help. I am really having like a parenting moment here. And our youngest had, um, locked himself in the bathroom pouting because he wasn't going to get popcorn at the movie theater. Mm. Now, my husband's experience of that was, look, he's lucky I'm taking him to the movies Mm -hmm. and he's acting spoiled. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like for him to pout that he's not getting popcorn. Are you kidding me? Like, forget it. I'm not going to take him, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, let's get curious for a second. I was like, first of all, I bought him popcorn when we went last time. So he probably has an expectation. And when you said movies, he got excited about that. I'm wondering if he's feeling disappointed. Mm -hmm. So then my husband could go into the room and say, are you feeling disappointed because you thought you, you were going to be able to get popcorn. Mm -hmm. So then the little pouty lip comes out and he nods and he begins to cry. Mm -hmm. And my husband can say, yeah, you, you had that expectation and now you feel disappointed. It's okay. It's hard to feel disappointed, but it's okay to be disappointed. We can still go have fun at the movies. Now we, again, we don't have to buy the popcorn, but it's about tuning in. So you're, you're perceiving his experience. You're making sense of what it might be before you respond. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think all of that is great. And I I think it's important that we really just realize what you're saying here, just putting high beams on, is that you're just reflecting back how they must be feeling. And guess what? If you get it wrong and he's not disappointed, he's something else, then he may get, it may be an in and he may not, you know, shake his head no and give you another word. 
or you may try again. So you don't have to be perfect at this, but you really are using your intuition and you're, you're using your gut and you're saying, oh, all right, well, let me put myself in this position and maybe see this story a little bit. uh, If I just take a, a glimpse further out and kind of look at the full picture, I might be getting a little bit more of the story than just what I'm seeing right now, which just looks like a spoiled child. But when I pull back, I'm seeing something else. I like and all their of ex- And it's their experience. It might seem ridiculous to me, to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember one of this one time my son Luke had a massive tantrum because he couldn't climb the walls like Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, that was not something I could fix, mm-hmm. even if I wanted to. <laughs> right. And you know, but I was like, oh, you're so, you're so disappointed about that. That would be right. so fun. So it's just really about tuning into yeah. their experience, even if it seems ridiculous to right. you. And what's cool about that is that when we do that, we're actually building the circuitry in their brain that allows them to begin to understand themselves and have insight and have empathy for others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of science that shows that what we give attention to gets built in the brain. And when we give attention to that internal landscape, it allows them to know themselves. And and even when they're having a hard time to say, gosh, what do I need right now? What would be, you know, what, what's happening for me? And that is such an amazing mm-hmm. gift we could give our kids. Yes, I agree with you. I, I'm I just remembering this parenting moment that I just I just had recently with my son who, you know, was feeling really frustrated about how his day went. And, you know, your impulse is often to want to, you know, go and fix as much as possible or to give suggestions and all that. And sometimes they literally just want to be seen. And what many of us do too. I mean, if you think about it, For you're sure. like telling your partner about, you know, your rough day you're not looking for suggestions on how you could have done it or make it better tomorrow and so i i just stopped and i said to him wow it sounds like you had a really rough day today and it just changed completely like his anger changed completely over and he was able to release you know he he was really upset but we were able to have really good conversation after that so uh, i i love the idea of being seen now i want to ask you because i had a big thing on the top of the page uh when you were talking about when there's not a natural fit between you and your child. And I know this happens a lot. Now, sometimes, you know, we've got two athletes that have a child who's a complete athlete and everybody understands each other just perfectly. And it goes swimmingly (laughs) a lot of the time. Um, but that does not always happen. Sometimes you've got two very studious people who give birth to or adopt a child who is not, or you have you know somebody who's an athlete who was expecting they were going to raise a child who'd be a hockey player and he's not. So it can be more difficult. I'm not saying it's not possible. It is possible, but it can be more difficult to really see your child because you've got this sort of oh, heated agenda in your mind and not in a bad way. You're like thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, team sports are great for this kid. He would learn this, this, and this. I really care about him. I want him to have more social skills. I mean, that can go on and on of the benefits of why you want your child to be doing something. And yet your child is 
telling you or is shown you, they don't want to go in the same direction as you do. So can you please tell us about how you can really see your child, meet them where they are and show up for them when they're really different from you? How do you do this? Yeah, this is and especially difficult if you have like really different sensory preferences. Like mm. if you think like things really quiet and you like to take your time with things and you have a kid who's a Ferrari who yes, goes slams right. into your body and, you know, um, so this can be really tricky. I think the most important thing we can bring is curiosity, mm -hmm. right? And to really be like, okay, who is this kid and how can I give them a response that allows them to later in life, look back and go, my parents totally got me. Mm. They were different from me. Like they were, I was, you know, I was like the Ferrari in the family with a bunch of, you know, bicycles and, <laughs> you know, they, my family's like got a really slow pace and I'm, you know, I blow right through them. Um, but they totally got me and they celebrated me for who I am versus a kid who says they didn't get me at all. Mm. They wanted me to be someone I wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to, Think about that. Um, you know, there's natural ruptures and there's ra natural things where we don't fit perfectly. No one's 100% compatible. Right. But will your child have the experience that you that they were understood? Um, Dan has a great phrase called "feeling felt." Mm -hmm. You know, where you're like, "They got me," mm -hmm. um, and you know, and to be able to say. I, you know, they, they really celebrated me for who I am. I didn't have to be someone else or pretend to be someone else. Mm -hmm. And we do that by the way we give attention to our children. So if your child, you know, I know I remember like I have one kid who went through this phase where, um, he, when he would watch like a television show or whatever, and he wanted to tell me about a funny scene, he would tell me the entire episode, you know, <laughs> and I'd be like, Oh, mommy's ears are so tired. You know, like mm -hmm. I just, I would get so tired of listening to all of that, you know? And so in that moment I could either totally just check out and then he would get the message like what's important to me and what I'm interested in. She isn't. Or I could say, Hey, I don't have a lot of time to listen. And what you have to say is so important to me. And so I want to make sure I'm giving you my full attention. So what do, what do you want to tell me? Um, what, knowing I just have a couple minutes to listen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I'm still responding to him or, you know, if our kids come in the room and, and they're talking to us and we're in the middle of something, like I'm in the middle of a podcast, I can't stop and listen and have a reflective dialogue with my mm -hmm. kid. Right. Mm -hmm. So I might just say, Hey, you know, give me just a second. Um, I really want to be able to listen. I can't do it right this minute. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we can just communicate that in the way we respond. When we join attention with a child, if they're like, this is the best stick I've ever found in my whole life, and you don't give a crap about sticks, but they're super into the stick, just by you giving attention to what they are giving attention to when you have joined attention, that creates intimacy and connection and that idea of being seen. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it has to do with what and how we're giving attention to our kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so some of it is really just being aware of yourself, which you talk a lot about in your book and just you know, really understanding where you're coming from and who you are, and then understanding that your child may be different from you and giving them the attention that they need for who they are, but also putting parameters over it because you're honoring who you are. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to model. That's a great, you said that really beautifully, way better than I did. Okay. Um, is that, you know, 
we don't want our kids to either to have the modeling of you just have to like you know be a um, be bulldozed all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't have to be passive mm-hmm. to or or enslaved to your child's every whim for your attention either. Mm-hmm. It's really about tuning into their needs, tuning into who they are, tuning into your own needs and who you are, and then finding a way that 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 relationship is bridged and connected and that that we want our kids to be able to set boundaries. And so it's okay for us to set them and, um, and to model that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's go into soothing. In your book, you talk about two polar opposites. The child who is not soothed, uh, feels when I get overwhelmed with big feelings, no one is going to help me. In fact, I'm going to get into trouble versus the child who is soothed and feels if my feelings get big and out of control, someone will be there for me and help me calm down and make good decisions. So tell us about how we can show up and soothe a child when their lid gets flipped, as you said, or maybe they're having a tantrum. Um, You can even tell us what to do versus what not to do in this realm as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the ways I think it's helpful to start thinking about this idea of soothed, which is really about comforting your child and providing help to them and letting them know you, you know, you're going to help them and, and you're going to help them calm down or help them feel safe. So it's just really comfort. Now, one of the ways that's helpful to think about that is if you think about your child being physically hurt, if they bump their head, if they fall off their bike, if they scrape their knee, the way we typically instinctively respond in that moment is what we want to do when they are in emotional or behavioral chaos as well. So in that moment, we typically would be like, oh, what happened? Come here. And we, we, you know, go to them and we hug them and we, or we pick them up or we rub their back or we tend to the wound. Um, and we provide a lot of nurturing and comfort when they're sick or when they're physically hurt. We need to do the same. What they need from us is the same when they have emotional pain. And we have to remember when someone is having a tantrum or when they are out of control emotionally, when their feelings get so big, they really are not in control of themselves. That is a really stressful experience. Mm -hmm. There are stress hormones running through the whole body and they feel out of control. They don't feel safe. And so what happens is that if we go to them and we provide comfort and connection first, even if there's a behavior that needs to be addressed, then they actually can move back to a calm, safe, soothed place. And then their brain becomes more receptive and open to learning. So if we go back to the bathtub and as I'm pulling JP out and I'm saying, you're so mad that that bath time is over. You were really having fun. So you're sad. It's over. Um, What I actually said to him in that moment, right after I, helped him feel seen was to say, if you need to cry and yell for a little bit, that's okay. You can let that out. And I'm right here with you. Mm. So part of soothing is even just being present. It's not even necessarily doing anything. You know, I train parents, um, who get into these battles with their kids where it ends up where the kids yelling and the parents yelling and, you know, eventually, you know, the parents like time out and then the kid won't stay in time out and the parents holding the door, you know, and it just escalates and escalates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I train parents either when you're about to yell or when your child is falling apart, especially when your child is falling apart is to sit on the floor or on a couch or chair or something below your child's eye level 
and say to them two things. So one, something empathetic about how they're feeling. That's the scene part, right? And saying, you're just really mad at me right now, or you're really sad about something. And then the second thing you say is, I'm right here with you. So just your presence is calming. Now, I work at a school, and we had a, an incident a number of years ago with a preschooler. Just, he had some sensory issues and dealt with some pretty significant anxiety and lots of big feelings. And one day he was making a picture for his mom and it was time to line up. So it was a transition, which was difficult for him. And, um, you know, one of the teachers was having a really rough day and, you know, she said, Hey, I, um, it's time to line up and he wouldn't line up. And so she took his paper away from him and he escalated his feelings really overwhelmed him and he ended up hitting her. So then he went to the office and he, you know, was kind of sent to the office. So mm -hmm. he had an experience of, I had really big feelings. I was making a picture for my mom and you took it away from me. Mm -hmm. And now I had these big feelings that I couldn't help. And now I'm in trouble. So then he feels really anxious about going to school the next day mm -hmm. because he goes, you know what, if I have big feelings, I can't help. I'm going to get in trouble. And so what, what could have been better is if that teacher had had the ability to regulate herself in that moment and to say, do more of the safe scene soothed and say, this picture looks like it's really important to you. So he doesn't line up, right? He doesn't put his picture away to say, this picture looks really important. Where should we put it to keep it safe so that you have time to work on it later for your mom? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, then he, and, he, and for him to, maybe he gets mad. Maybe he still has a hard time with the transition. He starts to yell and get mad. And she can say, oh, you're so disappointed about that. I will help you. Let's go outside. So then he has an experience of, I have really big feelings, but someone will help me when I have really big feelings. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different experience. Mm -hmm. mm. I love that example. I remember reading it in the book and, and circling it. In fact, I have a I have some words right here on the page in front of me that uh, asks me about that very thing, uh, just to make sure that it is reminding me about it so that I asked you about that right in this very moment with uh, what I just asked you. So thank you for reading my mind. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I was trying to help you feel seen. Yes. Thank you for seeing <laughs> me and anticipating my needs. Um, yeah. I think that's really important because a lot of us have kids who have trouble with switching activities and doing those transitions transitions and it can get very frustrating and we can automatically have these feelings of you know that child is being obstinate and right. being disrespectful right that's like our automatic and then we wind up getting much bigger and stern more stern and louder and uh, more frustrated um, and and making it happen right we tear the the crayon out of the kid's hand or right. you know, with the pen or whatever we take the paper and you know we tell them that this is what's happening and and you got to go along with it or you can go to your room or whatever we say so this is really addressing something that is a very common everyday experience for people of kids of all ages where when they're going through a transition and they're having a hard time, instead of just being in your own body and thinking this is making me feel frustrated and they're being disrespectful, that we're helping to see them and soothe them and say, you know, I see this is really important to you or I can see that you really want to finish this. Of course, you're setting the boundary. We're still, we, we still need to do this right now, but 
let's, you know, make sure we have a time to, for you to finish this or complete this or, but you're seeing them and you're allowing them to know that it's, you know, that it's important to them. And then you're also giving them the opportunity to still be frustrated. You can't say, That's you, know, right. you don't, you don't, you don't get a chance to be frustrated. They still may be frustrated, but that they understand, they, they get a feeling that you still get it and you That's get right. them. Okay. And you might, there might be moments where you do have to take the crayon out of the hand mm -hmm. and you do have to take the paper and, you know, you can't have a reflective dialogue with your child every time they're putting their shoes on. Absolutely there might be times not. you have There's to no time. pick up your, yeah, you may have to pick up your kid and pick up the shoes right. and maybe, maybe kicking and screaming. And in that moment, you can say, you're so mad. We have to go right now. You were really having fun. And, and just you saying that and being present with them and not freaking out and joining the chaos yeah. yourself, yes. that is safe scene and soothed. Right, so right. again, it's not about making things, you know, where you're compromising with your kid every time. It's really about tuning into their experience and saying, you know, you may be falling apart, but I'm going to not fall apart. I'm, right. I got this, you know? Right. And then the other, the other piece that I just want to, I feel like I have to say about soothed is that you know, what's so important about this is this is not about coddling our children. Yes. It's not about indulging them. And I get that question a lot is that people say, you know, yeah, but the world isn't like that. And if you like help them calm down all the time, like how are they ever going to learn? And the research is really clear on this. When kids get repeated experiences, when they're falling apart and we help them come back to being in that calm, receptive state again, or what we call in, in our books, um, having a more integrated brain, their brain actually gets practice for how to do that. Mm -hmm. So it actually builds a child. When we show up in that way, in very nurturing ways, it actually promotes independence and resilience because their brain has had practice doing that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. I slap that right on a meme right there. And yeah. uh, let's share that. Uh, this has been so good. I'd love to get your top tip. Tell us what you really want us to do or say when it comes to showing up for your child. Well, I think it's, it's really about remembering that when we provide repeated experiences, but not perfect, we don't have to be perfect. We can mess up all the time as long as we repair. But when we provide those repeated experiences of safe, seen, and soothed in a predictable way, what happens is we get that fourth S, which is secure. And I think that that is so key because what that means is not, I feel secure about myself. It's not a self-esteem thing, although that is an outcome. It's rather that their brains have wired to expect and know that if I have a need, someone's going to see it and show up for me. And then they expect that in their other relationships. So they choose healthier friends and healthier mates. And their brain then develops the capacity to show up for themselves mm. so they can help themselves be safe. They can see and understand themselves and they can soothe themselves. And I'm telling you, as a parent who's taken a kid to college and driven away, leaving them behind, that you want to make sure that they can do those things, you know? And so I think what I want to, like my top tip is a related to that. I know that was a long wait no, to come I back to your that. question. I wanted to ask you about <laughs> security anyway, so that's perfect. Oh, I jumped ahead. Um, is that, you know, for me, there are lots of moments as a parent, as a spouse, as a clinician that I don't know the exact right thing to do or to say. But for me, that idea of helping the other person feel safe, seen and soothed, that is my North Star. Mm. So 
you know, I can address whatever misbehavior that's going on. You know, my kid said something disrespectful. They hit their brother. All of those things, I'm going to address those. But my very first thing, what is always the answer, is to respond in a way that helps my kid feel safe, seen, and soothed. I think that's a great North Star. And would you say that that is then the key, the the coup de grace of the power of showing up? It is. It really is that when we show up, it changes their brain. And so it builds their brain and it builds our relationship with them. And the power of it is this is not always easy to do, but in a way it's a simple idea where, you know, we worry so much, as you said in your opening mm-hmm. so beautifully, we worry about so many things. And really what this research says is you don't have to worry about all that as much. Just show up for your kid most of the time in a sensitive way and their brain's going to be built in the most optimal way. So that is, that's powerful. Yes, absolutely. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, and the great work you're doing? My website is tinabryson.com. And so they, you can find all kinds of videos and articles and um, all kinds of resources there. Well, I just want to thank you. You have had great insights and strategies today. I loved your scripting. I think it's really important what you said about helping children feel safe and soothed and seen so that they feel secure. They have a secure base to go on and how it really builds the brain so that when your child becomes an adult, they are able to thrive on their own two feet and hopefully way before that, but that they are really coming into their own and knowing that they have you to fall back on, but they are secure in their own selves. So thank you so very much for being on the show today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And, you know, just one final thought is that this is hard to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And what's important is that we need this too. So make sure you are finding ways to have people who show up for you, people who help you feel safe, seen and soothed. And, you know, hopefully that's a significant other, but if it's not, it's, it's a best friend or a sibling or, you know, just making sure that you are showing up for yourself and finding other people who do that for you because we need to fill our tanks. This can be really challenging to do this work well. Right. You got to find your tribe. As my one of my besties says, you matter in equal measure. And that really is such an important thing to keep in mind while we are often caretaking and making sure that everybody is has got everything that they need to remember that we also deserve and need to be seen and soothed and and to feel safe in this world so that we are feeling secure. So that is a very, very good point. And thank you for saying that. Thank you, Robin. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it. It's so important. It makes an incredible difference so that other people can learn about Tina Bryson's information, solutions, and be able to use them in their own homes. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in every single week to how to talk to kids about anything. We just broke through over 400,000 downloads for this podcast, and I am just so appreciative that you are listening. You are 
showing up yourselves. We are all showing up and we're getting the information we need. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there. And the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. And I will be going back and forth with Tina Bryson, all with memes and great things to share. And we want to get it out to all of you because I know what she said is so impactful. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you, and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.